of a house. <laughs> like many houses built back then, sat up on piers, so that it was open underneath all the way across. And other than the foundation just mentioned, it was constructed completely of wood, pine, uh, which likely had a high amount of pitch. The house was old, and whatever moisture content there may have been in the air, dried timbers, uh, uh, when the house was first raised, was long since gone. The house itself was drafty. It had none of the modern contrivances, such as house wrapper insulation, to keep out the cold or the blowing air. And still it did good service as a home for my father's family for several generations and may have existed to this day, except for the fire. And that morning, for my grandmother began like any other, and as usual, she was up early before anyone else in order to spend time with the Lord, or at least she thought she was up before anyone else. As she walked out into the kitchen, she saw her youngest son, Vance, on the back porch, working the handle of the house's water supply, furiously pumping water onto the comforter of his bed to douse the flames. He had come home very late and had fallen asleep uh, smoking in bed, something he had been warned about before. When my grandmother realized what was happening, she had naturally a number of different emotions clamoring to be heard. Anger about the bedspread, anger about smoking in bed and coming in late, annoyance at being disturbed so early in her morning, even a gladness that things weren't worse than they were and that Vance was all right. But the emotion that chased all others away was concern or or a fear of what my grandfather would do if he should come out of the back of the house where he was still sleeping and find out what had happened. All right, grandfather was a good man and he loved his family, but he was stern and his decisions were swift and final. And her son, on the other hand, was in a bad place in his life and his mother wanted to protect him. So she told him, go get some firewood and bring it in. And she took that comforter from him and she quickly put it back into his room, shutting the door where the evidence was out of sight. And she thought she would deal with that later on when all the men were out in the field. And that's where the fire began in Vance's room. A little later, that same morning after the men had indeed left, it was years before my grandma could admit to herself that the fire was almost certainly caused by that still smoldering bedspread. But right then, there was no time to think. Houses like that go up like a match, the air blowing all around them, under them, and through them. Her invalid sister-in-law was in a room just across the hall, and Grandma rushed in. She thought for a moment about grabbing some blankets for the car where Aunt Annie would certainly have to go, but instead, for some reason, she realized later on, could only have been God's direction. She grabbed that poor old woman under the arms, at which point my great-aunt said, Is the house on fire? To which Grandma replied, though she doesn't remember it, Annie had to tell her later on, yes, it is, and you shut up, she said. 
Grandma would shrug her out of bed across the floor, out the door, bumped her roughly down the steps of the porch, out to the car. And then she looked back only to see the house fully engulfed in flames just that quick. And she was so glad. She hadn't gone after the blankets, for there was no getting back in. Now, Aunt Annie was the wealthy one of the family. She had never married, and she had managed to save up 500 whole dollars. The money was in that bedroom closet with the blankets uh, that my grandmother had thought about grabbing. It, It was gone now, along with the pictures, the keepsakes, the little few furnishings they had in the house. And though it was not very much, virtually everything they had, everything in the house anyway, went up in smoke. But they all got out alive. The men swallowed the smoke and the flames and rushed back from the fields, and then all of them stood together helplessly watching as that house burned and crumbled to the ground in the flames, feeling a great sense of loss and yet glad that everyone was safe. After much difficulty, they would rebuild, and Aunt Annie died that same year. Yet life went on, and my grandmother and grandfather and all the rest of the family had much to be grateful for. But how different would that story have been if my grandmother had thought about that money in the closet? She knew it was there. If she had taken time to find it, to grab it, to get a hold of it before grabbing her sister-in-law. Since as it turns out, they would have never been able to escape the flames. It went up that fast. What if Aunt Annie had insisted that my grandmother had retrieved that money before going anywhere. I mean, she had worked hard for it, after all. She had skimped and saved. It was all she or the rest of the family, for that matter, had. What if she had demanded that Grandma grab the cash? Well, to add to the loss of the house that day, there would have been two funerals, my grandmother's and Aunt Annie's. Next to that, that house, That money and all the things in it would have amounted to nothing. See, the things that were most important that day, the things that last for eternity, those things were safe that day. Now, that story from my family's history, it dramatically focuses our attention there, doesn't it, on on the important things Fires and other disasters tend to do that. They, they make us remember or think about what is most important in this short life that we have. If we lose a loved one at a time like that, we know even more powerfully just what is of real value. The weight of moments like that of fires and floods and earthquakes and storms, they demand a choice now. And the verdict on our judgment occurs now. But by God's grace, those times, if we ever are in them, we will make the right decision and choose the eternal and not the temporal thing. There is a sense, however, where those same choices are before us every day of our lives. They're just not so forcefully stated. Because of the circumstances we find ourselves are more mundane, more everyday. The decisions we make don't seem to be matters of life and death. What comes into play most often is we're making our way through life. The thing that is in fact advising our choices 
is what we think about life, our existence, deep down inside of us. It's a visceral, it's our gut instinct, which often ends up steering the ship. Now, you know, don't you, that our first parents exchanged paradise in an attempt to be God. So it is part of our sinful makeup that we want to sit in the director's chair so that we can order the scenery and the occurrences of our world. We seek money or power, fame or success as a kind of hedge against the vicissitudes of life. We don't like uncertainty. We want control, and so we look for those things that put the levers of control in our life into our own hands. And still, when we try to live life under those conditions, reality simply won't cooperate. See, we're attempting then to get out of this world something it cannot give us. This world can never give us a security our sinful nature desires. And for every apparent success we have as we attempt to take that kind of control in our life, there is a corresponding and unintended sacrifice which always affects something, at least to a grade, it affects something significant, something of eternal significance. Now, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, with the exception of Jesus Christ. And he told us, as we saw last time when we were together, that our life is but a breath. So we know there's no time to be wasted on schemes that don't work. If we have any wisdom ourselves at all, we're going to realize we can't afford the prices such things demand in any case. No one can. Solomon continues his discourse after a kind of introduction that we looked at last week in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And in what follows, he begins to relate to us more of what he's discovered, the reading of which is exceedingly depressing. See, for all of his wisdom, Solomon did some very foolish things, some of which he relates to us here. And one person wants to wonder how someone so wise could be so carried away. But the thing that puts a stop to that kind of thinking, at least for me, is realizing that given the same opportunities that Solomon had, I probably would have done no better and maybe would have done much worse. But the reading is not easy. There's no fun in it at all. It's the kind of thing you might want to skip over if you're given a choice. What makes it worthwhile is the conclusion he comes to after all of his foolishness. So though it's not going to be a whole lot of fun and not going to be enjoyable, we're going to dive right in. And the first thing that Solomon tells us is this. No matter what advantages anyone has, life without God is broken and a burden, and even wisdom does not change that. So verse 12 of chapter 1 reads, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. 
Now, I suppose that if anyone were to have the ability to order their own existence, it would be this man, the greatest king of his time and the wisest man of all ages. As we make our way through this book over the next many weeks, we'll discover that Solomon himself found out that all those advantages really didn't change reality. None of us, not even Solomon, can fill the director's chair. So after reminding us of his advantages, he goes on to tell us that he employed his wisdom as he examined life. Verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now that phrase, under the heavens, uh, uh, is another way, uh, is similar to that, uh, something we looked at last week. We saw then that under the sun was a way of referring to life that's lived without God. Under the heavens is, uh, if anything, more pointed than that. Solomon is stressing to us here that he is investigating life of human beings who take no regard of God at all. And the rest of verse 13 tells us, at least in part, what he discovered. Now, I'm going to use the ASV. The NIV is going to be on the screen, but I'm going to use the English, uh, English Standard Version because I think it makes his point just a little more clearly. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, remember, he's talking about life without God. And without God, life, human life, is an unhappy business. One might say, I mean, the teacher does, in essence, say it, if, that God designed life to be a burden if it's lived without him. Now, one might also say life's burdensomeness is the natural result of a life lived without God, and both of those things are, in fact, true. God is necessary if our lives are to have meaning. And verse 14 puts a period to all of that. This is what he says there. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. That is in life lived without God. All of them are meaningless. That's a passing breeze. All those things are the briefest of brief. A chasing after the wind, which is a poetic way of saying that such a life is empty. Solomon tells us that even if you are a king, even if you have great wisdom, without God, life is just a chore. I don't know if you know that Narnia Tales is one of my favorite um, writings. I love C.S. Lewis in general, and I've read those tales. I couldn't tell you how many times. In, the, in one of them, there's a story about Jadis, uh, the evil witch queen of the uh, evil and dead world of Charn, dead because she killed it. And she got into Narnia quite by mistake. And she discovered there a walled garden in which there was a fruit that caused the one to eat it to live forever. There was a sign there warning people off, warning them against taking the fruit for themselves. But Jada said, well, she was quite used to getting her own way, and so she scaled the wall and she ate the fruit. She took it off the tree, and consumed it. And the great lion Aslan, the king of all that world, uh, tells those who um, hear of Jadis' treachery that even then it was beginning to enter into her heart that length of days with an evil heart 
is only length of misery. And so it is. Life without God, no matter what your advantages, becomes an unbearable burden. And, and there's this thing about it that we just can't get over. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, we can't fix the broken things of this world, and we don't even know what's needed. We don't know in what way they're broken or how broken they really are. Our world is fallen, and we don't have the cure. And yet, for all of that, we want to sit in the director's chair. What foolishness, what arrogance, what hubris. In verses 16 and 17, which we're not going to read, Solomon is saying something like this, if even I... With all my insight and all my advantages, can't figure this out. Who can? And then, I think to our very real surprise, in verse 18, he tells us, without God, even wisdom, as good a thing as that is, even wisdom is useless and becomes just a drag on the spirit. Listen to what he says. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. Solomon, the wisest man who did many foolish things, proclaims to us that no matter what advantages someone has, life without God is broken and a burden. And even wisdom does not uh, change that. Now, at this point in Solomon's life and in his writings, the teacher changes tactics. Uh, He had tried wisdom, he valued it, but he discovered it couldn't get him over the hump, so to speak. Life without God is too heavy to bear, and wisdom seemed to make matters worse, revealing the world as it really is. So maybe wisdom isn't the answer. Maybe he thought something else is. Something else might do the trick. And so he tried pleasure and folly and accomplishment, only to find that, again, without God, they are empty. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Solomon writes this, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And he quickly discovers that it also proved to be meaningless, just as fleeting and maybe even more so than all the other things in life. In verse 2, he says, laughter is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I mean, he's agreeing with those people in our world today, pessimists, uh, many of them, people who have little or no hope of any good coming in their life, who say this, if you're happy in this life, you don't really understand what's going on. So thought Solomon. And he asked this question, what does pleasure accomplish? And he doesn't even bother answering it because it's so obvious. But we're going to say it. Mere pleasure accomplishes nothing of lasting value. From pleasure, he turns to folly, as we see in the beginning of verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. He tries to alleviate the burdens of life with alcohol, but there is no relief. Just folly. And he turns quickly elsewhere. And then since wisdom and folly proved worthless, he turns to things that... uh, Some people might call worthwhile endeavors. So in the beginning of verse 4, he tells us, I 
undertook great projects. And we continue reading, I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. I made reservoirs and groves of flourishing trees to water them. Those are the civic and building projects which, though good, will prove ultimately worthless in a life lived under the sun. Verses 7 and 8, he's turned from the civic projects to mere accumulation of money. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasures of kings and provinces. And his great wealth has brought him no more rest than that. Those who think that the answer to everything is money, or at least the answer to their problems is money, need to take note of Solomon here. Solomon was wealthier than Bezos, but it didn't bring him satisfaction. He goes on, I acquired male and female singers in a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. So he returns to pleasure, but a purely hedonistic kind. If wine couldn't deaden the pain, maybe this would cover it up. But it doesn't satisfy him, so he turns elsewhere in verse 9. I became greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in my wisdom it stayed with me. He had what so many seek. He was fabulously famous. And he indulged himself completely, as verse 10 said. I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was a reward for all my toil. He he had tried everything. He denied himself nothing. He took every pleasure. He enjoyed the things he did. But what follows next in the text and in his life negate all of that? Solomon tells us in verse 11, Yet when I survey all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a passing breeze. It was a chasing after a wind. It was just emptiness. Nothing was gained under the sun. That's sad stuff, isn't it? Someone would live like that. Wisdom without God became only a burden. Pleasure, folly, accomplishment, in the end, meant nothing. Everything is still fleeting. It's still empty. Nothing has been gained at all in a life without God. And so in near despair, Solomon turns back to wisdom. In verse 12 and following, he acknowledges that wisdom is better than the other things he tried. And we begin in verse 13. I saw that wisdom was better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their head, but the fool walks in darkness. But in the end, even wisdom doesn't help, verse 16. For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man must die. The wise die and are forgotten, just like and death makes even wisdom and everything else useless. In a life lived merely under the sun. And at the end of all his inquiries, Solomon was left desolate. Let me read you portions of 17 through 23. As bleak and as barren as they are. 
So I hated life because of the work that is done under the sun. It was grievous to me. All of it meaning some passing breeze, a chasing of the wind that was empty. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. He couldn't keep all he had toiled for. He wasn't able to take it with him. He would leave it behind. And who knows whether the person who inherits it is wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all my fruit of my labor into which I have poured my efforts and skill under the sun. And so my heart began to despair over my toilsome labor under the sun. And then in verse 22, he asks the question, what the people get for all the toil and anxious striving which they labor under the sun? And his answer in verse 23, all their days. Their work is grief and pain, and at night their minds do not rest. And this, too, is meaningless. I don't know if you're feeling depressed right about now. You should be. See, without God, life is pain and grief. Without God, there's no rest. And if life flies by like an arrow shot from a bow or a bullet shot out the barrel, wisdom without God becomes only a burden. Pleasure, folly, accomplishment in the end mean nothing. Everything is fleeting. Everything is empty. Nothing can be gained in a life without God. In the end, death erases all the marks we have made in this life. In a useless life lived only under the sun. What a barren wasteland we just traveled through. All of it is exceedingly miserable and gloomy. But where we turn next, well, that makes it worthwhile. In, in, in preparing this message, I can just tell you it was like slogging through mud. But where we turn next makes the trip through all that barren land worth it. You see, Solomon comes to the first reference of what is a recurring theme in this book, which I'm going to state broadly for now as enjoy the life that God has given you. Everything else is fleeting and empty. So looking up from the bottom of that hole he had been busy digging for himself, the grave that he had prepared for himself, in spite of all of his wisdom, Solomon sees a truth which had hitherto eluded him. He, he, the beginning of verse 24 tells us what he sees. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. It, he realizes something more, though. He realizes that that is only possible with God. And the rest of that thought makes it clear. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? Solomon is saying that for us, there is nothing better, nothing better for a human being uh, to do as they make their way through this world than this, to eat and drink and enjoy their work. Real wisdom is found in not trying to take the director's chair so you can order your own existence. Rather, it is found in accepting those things the director in his goodness has given you to enjoy, and that on a daily basis. 
Now, I, I know that you're sitting there and you're wondering, is that all there is? Maybe you're sitting there and say, that doesn't sound like a very bright spot to you. Although I think after all that darkness we traveled through to get here, even the dimmest of candles might seem like a bright sunlight. But I want to look more closely at, uh, a little more deeply at what he just said. See, when Solomon is talking here about eating and drinking, he's not talking about the culinary delights. He doesn't have in mind the joys of the table or the flavors of the fruit of the vine. He, he means something different, something more than that, than just those kinds of pleasures. You see, meals uh, often in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are symbols. They represent something beyond the mere eating and drinking. And when they do that, when they are used to point past themselves, they are a picture of fellowship. And we understand that very clearly when we read Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, don't we? When Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with, uh, come in and eat with that person and they will eat with me. Now, Jesus isn't looking for food. He's looking for a relationship with us. The Lord's Supper itself is not really about the food, is it? It's not really about the cracker and the, and the grape juice. But what it represents, the broken body of Christ and his shed blood which makes fellowship with the living God possible. And neither is Solomon concerned about what is on the table, but who is around that table. That's what matters. We are to enjoy in this life our family and our friends. And if you haven't gotten it yet, the only real way to enjoy them is if God is at the table too. Life living under, merely under the sun, there's no choice. But with God, these things that are available to all people, not just to kings, available to us all the time, that's the real joy given to us by God. And this life enjoying the company of, of people is one of God's great gifts to us which we can enjoy every single day. Our kids were little. Uh, I, I was a pastor. Even when I'm not a pastor, I usually close down the church, right, to stand around and talk with people and, and visit with them, right? And my kids were young, and they always said, come on, let's go, right, let's go. They had no concept of why we do it. We stand there because have fellowship with other Christians means so much. It's food for the soul. Our kids have grown up now, and now they're understanding. They're getting it, right? The other thing the teacher mentions is a little less obvious, but with a little diligence we can understand what he's driving at. He says that we should find pleasure uh, or satisfaction in our work. And some of you uh, find uh, this difficult because you just can't imagine liking your job. <laughs> And uh, others of you like your jobs too much, and Solomon will have something to say to you about that at a later date. But for those of you who don't know what it's like to enjoy your work, um, you, you've no doubt heard the advice, find something you enjoy doing and you'll never work a day in your life. 
and you're sitting there right now and you're very much afraid that I'm going to give you that same advice. And yet you can't conceive what such a job would be. And in any case, you don't have the luxury of trying to find it. The bills keep coming in and the kids get hungry every day, several times a day. Of course, you know if you did find such a job, you'd be foolish not to take it, and you probably think that if you could start all over again, you might do things differently, but that's not an option for you, and here you are. There's this very interesting English word that you don't hear used very often anymore, I don't think, Uh, and even when it was being used regularly, it had lost much of its original meaning. The word is vocation, right? Uh, maybe you remember that from your school days, uh, <laughs> vocational technical education, right? And the classes were designed to give young people, those who weren't going to college, real-life training for a particular kind of job so that they could get that job after, after graduation. But the word vocation originally meant a calling by God. And that idea of calling wasn't applied as narrowly as it is today to just those who go into full-time Christian ministry. Everyone is called. Christians have historically understood that fact. And we have believed that God has a plan for our lives and that he gives us our work to do. And what makes this even more astounding is that even slaves in the days of the apostles thought of themselves as being in the place where God had called them to be. Now, the Bible lays down principles that eventually lead to the abolition of slavery everywhere it goes. But in the meantime, those who are in chains are not out of the will of God. Paul told such people if they could gain their freedom, they should do so. But the Bible is clear. And they understood they need not be ashamed of their position. They should serve their master as if they were serving Jesus Christ himself. Because God had called them from life unto, uh, from death to un- everlasting life, and they were free in their hearts and spirit. So if you're in a dead-end job, if you can, somehow find a way out and take it. But if you can't, if you can't get out, can you not then serve Christ there? Is your job worse than being a slave? And if you do serve Christ there, do you think that will make a difference to how you do your job? And then do you think that might make any difference in how you feel about your job? I think in Christian wisdom comes down on this side, it most certainly will matter in how you feel and how you do your work. And yet I'd ask you another question. Why are you working? Or better, who are you working for? Do you have a family to care for? Uh, Do you give to your church? Do you support a missionary? Do you help those in need, uh, either with some little small gift of money or or the more precious gift of your time and energy and encouragement? Are you trying just not to be a burden on someone else? Then you are doing an honorable thing. 
And though you may not enjoy your work, you can take joy in the fact that you're working. And the satisfaction of our work may not lie on the surface. You may have to dig for it, but it'll be worth the effort. That's what the text says, you know. We are to find satisfaction in our work. And when God is in your life, you can find joy in his everyday gifts, the friendship uh, uh, and fellowship of good people he has put in your life. And there is joy to be found even in the worst of jobs and the work that you do every single day. Solomon sought after the director's chair. He set out to order his own life. He was wise beyond our ken. He had power and wealth to shape the world around him. And all he managed to do was dig himself into a deep, dark hole where there was nothing but despair and gloom. He learned through all of that that wisdom without God is only a burden. Pleasure, folly, and accomplishment in the end are meaningless. Everything is fleeting, everything is empty, nothing can be gained in a life without God, and in the end, death erases all the marks we've made on this life. Without God in your life, you cannot truly enjoy this life. You will always be chasing fleeting dreams and hopes. You will continually be coming up empty-handed, and when you reach your goal, if you reach it, you will find you are nowhere at all. You will find yourself, in fact, in Solomon's grave. Solomon looked up. He looked past the sun. He looked to the heavens. He looked to God. And then he saw that living the good life meant accepting the good gift that God offers his children here on the earth to enjoy real fellowship with those we love around his table and to find joy at the work he has given us to do For we're serving him, and none of that service ever goes to waste. After all the foolishness, he spoke words of real wisdom. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, thank you for um, this book, which uh, in some ways is uh, hard to read and depressing, uh, and yet, Lord, when we understand what you're getting at, it becomes so very practical. My prayer for myself and everyone here today is not that just we would hear Uh, what your word says not just that we would have some understanding of it but that we would indeed embrace it and we would hear what you're saying to us that we would put it into practice in our own lives and when we leave here that we would realize the good you've given us in our family and honorable work in Jesus name we pray Amen.